you've been shooting a long time. And yeah, I, I heard, I heard, I heard a statistic once that PRS shooters have a lifespan of about two to two and a half years. I think that was a, um, a Shannon K quote that people mm-hmm. that come to the PRS, they come and they go in a window of about two years, they lose interest, right? They come, they buy yeah. a bunch of equipment, they get a little bit of skill and then they basically lose interest gone and they go, I don't know, take up sailing or something like that. But yeah, I've seen that what, happen a lot. What, what has kept you so fascinated and motivated by the art of precision, precision rifle? Ah, uh, that's, that's, that, that's a, that's a really deep question. Not, not at all, not at all invalid either. Um, it wasn't, I was shooting a precision rifle, uh, you know, since I was a kid, you know, it was like, uh, my, my father would take me out and we would go hunting. And first it was a, a, a shotgun, you know, I had a, a 12 gauge shotgun and the single shot, you know, break open and I would go out and I would hunt rabbits. You know, he would go with me and, and, you know, supervise me whenever I was way too young to be shooting the shotgun, but he would, you know, really make sure that I was staying safe with it and, and shooting rabbits. And then, uh, you know, from there it went to, you know, a 22 and, you know, with the same thing, you know, going out and then we would go out and we would hunt pigs as I got a little bit older. And, you know, he taught me how to, you know, field dress, you know, white-tailed deer or pigs or anything else. Where I live in South Texas, it's, it's kind of unique because bacon just walks up into your yard. So <laughs> it's kind of a, it's kind of, it started out with the hunting thing. And um, I, I just got the, you know, I got the, the idea that these rifles that we're shooting, they go a lot further than what we're typically you know, what we're typically hunting ranges, you know, it was just one of those things. So I kind of became fascinated with it. And I started shooting my first, my first really, I guess, long range precision rifle that I got was HS precision and 300 Win Mac. And so I remember I had to wait like three months for that gun to come in. And, you know, I started reloading with it and everything else and, you know, doing some, you know, longer range hunting skills. And I, you know, found out that this is just something that I, I really, really like a lot. And it's not, it's not that I don't have other interests, you know, I, I have other interests, you know, I have, you know, other hobbies and things like that, but the long range precision rifle is more, I don't know how to, to say it other than the fact that there's so many facets of it. There's so many things you can do with it. Like you can, you can do the PRS, you can do the NRL, the competitions, you know, you can hunt with it, you know, you can go out with your own, you know, just in your own time. And it's kind of, whenever I pick up a rifle and I go out and I'm shooting on my own, it's more of a meditation type thing. You know, it kind of keeps me grounded. You know, it's, um, it's one of those things to where, you know, we have other things going on in our life that, you know, take up time. And, you know, just like with you, whenever you called, I was out mowing the range, you know, it's kind of, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why it stuck with me other than the fact that whenever you get into NRL or PRS competitions, um, you're kind of, you're kind of seeing the same thing over and over. And, and I think that when people come into those competitions, like, you know, Shannon said, and have, you know, a lifespan of two and a half years or whatever it is, they kind of get to the point to where, all right, this was fun and I liked it, but you know, I've, I've got other, it's just another thing that they did, you know, another, another sport that they did, you know, it could have been golf, you know, that they got into for, you know, that amount of time. And then they figure out that they want to do something else. And that's fine. Except my deal was, you know, and even now when I look at it, I I used to love to compete and and I really did. And that kind of transferred over the years by doing classes and stuff like that. Nothing, (laughs) nothing really, 
you know, toots my horn more than whenever I'm training a student and I'm training a student, they're having a rough go with it. And, you know, we train, you know, we train civilians, military, police, you know, everybody whenever it clicks or that light bulb goes off and I see that light bulb go off and they start to, they start to succeed. And, and just, just seeing the look on their face and the, the excitement in their voice, I get off on that, man. I, I like being able to, you know, train people into doing this. And so now I've got the love of the, of the sport myself, you know, for hunting and, you know, for my own, you know, meditation purposes, but also I'm able to give that to someone else. And if I give that to someone else and they go and they do better, whether they're training to hunt, cause we train hunters a lot too. And I get, you know, I get these, you know, emails, Hey, I just got back, you know, and you know, I got this, I, mean, I couldn't get any closer to this one sheep. The closest I could get was 450 yards. And it's a picture of him with the sheep. And so it's like, they say, I would have never even attempted that shot before I came and took classes with you. And to me, that's, that's something I'm able to give that to somebody else. And there's, there's joy in that for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there has to be right. Otherwise yeah. you wouldn't be here talking and, and uh, almost every conversation wouldn't come back to Jacob Bynum at rifles only. So, <laughs> well, we've yeah, we so been around for a long time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I appreciate it. And, and my story definitely involves a lot of, a lot of your name. So I think uh, most of the time you are kind of synonymous with the fundamentals of marksmanship. Yeah. Where, yeah. where, where like, uh, you know, and, and obviously like I love and talk to Frank all the time, you know, we live just down the street basically from each other and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then he, he, he taught with you at rifles only. And so, sometimes it's hard for me to separate like the evolution of how kind of the, the modern fundamentals come about, but my understanding, at least, at least my, my version of the story involved you guys kind of tweaking kind of older fundamentals into kind of what people often perceive now as the fundamentals, like the 90 degree trigger press the, uh, Mm -hmm. but, but, but how, how did, how did some of that kind of, how did some of that shake out into, I don't want to say doctrine, but, but, mm-hmm. you know, how, how did it, how did you separate it from the dogma into a short list of things that were repeatable? And if people did it was universal. Uh, mainly the, the real reason for it, you know, Chris was, was frustration because there was, there were shots that I wanted to make that I couldn't make. And so, it was like, well, I, I knew something about, you know, the fundamentals, you know, it was, it was something then I went, I went out and, you know, I got with Clint Smith and, you know, he, he really pushed in the fundamentals of marksmanship, but there wasn't any of that, you know, like the 90 degree trigger finger. And I, that to me came back from, you know, other things that I'd done with my life, you know, as far as far as like welding and machine shop work, I had done all of this stuff in the past. And so I started looking at that rifle and saying, okay, what is the basic concept of this gun? Okay, well, whenever the gun fires, the bullet goes one way and the recoil goes the other. Well, then how come my rifle's bouncing off to the right or to the left, you know, whenever I shoot? And I thought, well, if the bullet's going one way, recoil's going the other, that's just a straight action. And so people would say, oh, well, the reason it bounces to the left is because whenever the bullet hits the rifling, you know, it torques it. And, and I thought, no, this, this just, it's just too short of a period of time in there for that. So I started looking at it and saying, okay, if I'm going to light this thing up, the bullet's going to go one way, the recoil is going to go the other, but there's also going to be something else associated with it. And that's vibration. The whole machine is going to vibrate. 
And I, I just, I couldn't wrap my head around how come it kept jumping. And I thought, well, think about angles, you know, think about, you know, pushing something. And it came in like with, um, you know, if I have two pencils right here on the floor of the, of the, the team room that I'm in right now, you know, if I'm pushing one pencil with another pencil and I stay straight behind it, then that pencil will go straight forever. But as soon as I introduce any kind of angle to that at all, the push, the pencil that's being pushed is going to, it's going to go at an angle. Can, can you kind of see what I'm talking about? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And so then I thought, well, it has to be the way it's made it up between the rifle and the shoulder pocket. Okay. That because everybody was, you know, shooting off to the side and, you know, they were not, behind, not straight behind their guns. They would typically have that problem. So I, I tried it out. And, you know, just getting as straight as I could behind the gun. It's very uncomfortable, but, you know, I did it and I came up with methodologies to make sure that you're straight behind the gun. And I noticed there's a, quite a bit of reduction in that or a reduction in that bounce off to the left. And then I started thinking, well, if all of these things, these vibrations and these forces, these opposing forces are causing this, what's going on with that trigger as well? So I just looked at the hand and I thought, you know, the trigger on any rifle that you go up to, if you push that trigger laterally, it will have a little bit of play right and left. But that's not the, the, that's not the direction that it's made to go. It's made to go from forward to back, you know, to, to engage the trigger and have the rifle go off. So I started experimenting with that. How can I you know, make sure that I'm coming straight back on that trigger every single time? And when I did, I noticed that the hop just went away. And I mean, we're talking, this is ancient, ancient history. This is so long ago. And so, you know, I started, you know, going with classes and everything else and saying, Hey, just manipulate the trigger in this fashion to where, you know, you're not coming back into the right or back into the left. And you're going to see a lot of that hop go away. Um, now years into this, sometimes you'll have a student that they're straight behind the gun and I'm sitting there watching them. And as I'm watching them, they're coming straight back on the trigger. I've already hit them with a taser. So they're, they're not, they're completing their follow through and everything else, but they're still getting a hop. And so the third reason for that rifle hop is where you're holding the rifle into your shoulder pocket. You know, you imagine in your mind that you're holding it straight into your shoulder pocket. Well, some people feel like when they're holding it straight into their shoulder pocket, they're not, they're actually holding it at a, they're putting a little bit of differential pressure and coming back into the right with the gun a little bit. So then whenever the rifle recoils, it's going to exploit, exploit that as well. So what we do is we say, okay, whenever you think you're holding the gun straight into your shoulder pocket, don't do it back at six o'clock, do it back at seven o'clock. And normally when they'll do that, then the hop goes away. Well, what was going on? What they perceived to be holding the gun straight back into their shoulder pocket, they were actually holding it back with a little bit of differential pressure towards the five o'clock. So there's, and this is, this is more of, of diagnosis on, you know, what's, how come this student is doing that? The whole, the whole idea of all of this, all of it was for the student to be able to see the result of their shot through their optic. And if you're going to do that, and, and the reasons I don't even need to explain why, you know, you need to do that. If you need to make a second shot correction, or, you know, you, you need to, you know, change something on your hold for the wind or for a mover or something like that. But if you're, if you're pulling the trigger and then losing your entire sight picture, any kind of correction that you try to make is, is, I mean, you don't really have a foundation for that kind of correction. And so putting all these things together to where we can actually see the shot, you know, we're following the fundamentals, man. I, I mean, the hit rates just started to really go up a lot. And so that, that's, that's more of a tweak of the fundamentals, you know, that's a proper trigger control. All right. And, and the thing about it is, is, you know, say, okay, what is proper trigger control? And with a student, 
they might not have a, a definition of proper trigger control. They may not know what it is. Maybe they think slapping the trigger is normal, and it's not, obviously. So that those the fundamentals were always there. You know, they were always there. It's just one, you know, getting good definitions on the different fundamentals of marksmanship, methodologies to test those and to make sure that you have it right, and then repetition so that you can apply it in any situation that you face. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. So you mentioned repetition. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, you know, fr- from an athlete and from, a, you know, any, any kind of motor skill development context, um, mm-hmm. you know, obviously like reps, reps is going to come in because you have to do, you have to do skills over and over and get, get that, that neural, that neural development. And um, right. how I, I know that you're a, proponent of dry fire to a certain extent i don't i don't uh, know how yeah. much a but, lot <laughs> um, but what 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 are some of the repetitions like what are some of the cues because you don't have the recoil and it's something that i've actually honestly been curious about because when i do when i do dry fire most of the time um you know what i call dry fire is just kind of building a position but it's it's mm-hmm. actually not the not the shot process itself, but, but, you know, can, you know, how, understanding how to manage my equipment to get a position built in a certain amount of time to know whether it would be realistic in a certain right. time frame. Um, but I actually don't pull the trigger dry firing very much. And, mm-hmm. but when I have, you know, I, I noticed that you see subtle, predictable things happening. What are some of the things that you look for? while dry firing so that you know that the repetitions that you're doing are correct. Well, the, the thing about it is, like you say, it's about building positions. And so the reason that I you know recommend that people dry fire a lot is because if they're not going and they're, they don't have the proper hand position, um, you know, they're, they're not coming straight back on the trigger. And so if they're not coming straight back on the trigger, we know what's going to happen with that. Mm-hmm. But the other part of that dry fire deal is like what you say, building positions. And so whenever, whenever we have, um, Lisa's going to get the key for you. Okay. So when it, back to the definition of natural point of aim, if you go to someone and they say, okay, get your natural point of aim. All right. So a student will look at that and say, I don't know what natural point of aim is. You know, what does that mean exactly? <clears throat> and there's a bunch of definitions for natural point of aim. But the one I use is weapon pointed to the target, body pointed to the weapon. Once we have that, we'll go through the test. Close your eyes, go through a couple breathing cycles, see if the reticle's where you left it. If it's not, make an adjustment, move your body and the rifle as one unit. Then the fine test, and the fine test is a simple dry fire. And the reason that we want to do that simple dry fire is because if you've ever dry fired your rifle and you notice that the reticle jumps like about a half inch or an inch, well, where that, where that reticle jumps to is where you're really naturally aligned. So whenever you do the fine test for that, you need to go and look at that. Where did that reticle jump or did it jump at all? If it's not jumping at all, every time you pull it, then you know that you have a good natural point of aim. So we've got a definition of natural point of aim. We have methodologies to test for our natural point of aim. So that would be, that would be something that I would really, really recommend for someone to start out. And I've got a video on this and everything else. But going into what you're saying, what, what you're saying is building positions. 
And you're right, because we're not going to go off and just shoot prone the whole time. That's not our game. You know, we shoot off barricades, we shoot off tripods, we shoot off this, we shoot off that. So as we're doing this, well, how, how, is, how is pulling the trigger whenever I've got this, you know, wobble going on, how is pulling the trigger going to tell me if I have a good natural point of aim or not? So you have to go to a different test for natural point of aim whenever you're in alternate positions, because your reticle is going to wobble around a little bit. And so the way that you test for that natural point of aim whenever you're in alternate positions is making sure that your intended impact point for that bullet is right in the center of that wobble. In other words, the center of the target, I've got equal error all the way around it. And what that means is if I do that and I really pay attention to that, pay attention to it, that tells me where I'm naturally aligned. That's how I can test natural point of aim in an alternate position. Now, in your case, okay, I, I have more build positions than anything else. Well, yeah, you're right. Because what's going to happen is the first time you get into that alternate position, your, your wobble could be completely off the target. It could be, you know, four mils in any direction. You know, and I'm talking about, a, a, you know, a short range target, 300, 400 yards. Well, you have to build neural pathways in your, in your body, in your brain to be shooting from that position. And so whenever you do that, you'll notice that your wobble gets smaller, your wobble gets smaller. And the next thing you know, uh, the next thing you know, your wobble isn't even off the target. And so what you have done there is by repeatedly building that position, you have trained your brain. You, you built those neural pathways. And, and one of the things that I say in my class is that if you're a right-hander and you want to know exactly the, the exact parallel to this is that tonight, before you go to bed and you're brushing your teeth, put on your safety glasses and brush your teeth with your left hand. Believe me, you're going to need those safety glasses. You know, you're going to be punching your gums and everything else. And the reason is, is because you don't have the neural pathways to brush your teeth with your left hand because you've never done it. You've always done it with your right hand. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. So by you saying, okay, my dry practice, I'm not really pulling the trigger too much. I'm working on building positions. Okay. So look at your own, look at your own journey through this. Whenever you first got into this and you, you were, you know, wobbly on those positions, how is it now as compared to then? Are you better or are you worse? Right. Right. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I mean, I feel like I, I kind of embody like your message because I've spent time with you and spent time with Frank and other, other kind of really important instructors that go back to expanding skill sets rather than refining a specific niche. Actually, like, I, I don't know if you listen to my podcast, but after the guardian, whenever the heck that was, that was, um, I don't even know when it was months and months ago. Uh, I had built a left-handed rifle and I, I have for the last four months, I've only been shooting left-handed, uh, with a left-handed action, just, just, just mm -hmm. for that reason that be, you know, but be, you, you know, me like, I, I don't, I don't really want to be good at one style. I want to, I want to be a good rifleman. And when I imagine a good rifleman, I imagine a scenario that somebody has not really prepared for, but still being able to perform in it. So I daydream right. about, you know, when I, when I daydream about, man, you know, what would have, you know, what, what may have assassin's way looked like? Well, you know, maybe Jacob would say, here's the rifle you're going to use surprise. Right. 
And yeah. maybe, you know, maybe you would say, you know, here's a left-handed rifle, or maybe you would say, you know, there's no electronics, or maybe you would say, um, you know, or, or just put us in places like, all right, you know, we're in chest deep powder snow and right. And, you know, now, now the equipment that you have isn't as functional as you thought it was, you know, you're not going to put your bipods down on that powder. And so right. I, I love that. I love the idea of imaginary, you know, scenarios that you didn't plan for. And, and how, and, and I, and I do think that almost in every walk of life, in, in, you know, I mean, shit, like you talk about welding and, and mechanical stuff, like stuff breaks and you, and you don't know what's going to break. Right. And if, if you're good at fixing things, you solve the problem when it happens. And somebody that just says, well, I'm really good at, at, you know, swapping out the spark plugs when, when they get a flat tire, they're not exactly, they don't sure know what, what to do. do. Right. Right. Or, exactly. Yeah. You know, um, or Chad Heckler, I don't know if you know him, they were driving, they're driving to the AG cup and it looks to me like the recording equipment for their podcast went out. And I think he has like a little soldering iron and he's fixing the equipment in the car. You know, to me, that's like that my idea of a rifleman, you know, somebody that's good isn't, you know, I can do this refined thing over and over again, but they're like, you know, I can do anything anywhere at a certain level of proficiency so yeah. so man you know I, I don't um i think that 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 message i i receive it and hopefully the listeners receive it loud and well that that you have to shake up your nervous system and actually put in the reps you can't just hear it and nod and acknowledge it without actually changing right. changing your behavior um yeah and that's just like making shots like that, you know, and I have a, I have a, a good example on the, on the last uh, Nell guy that I shot. Um, I didn't expect it. I have my rifle in the, in the truck with me and I didn't expect to see this animal and uh, <clears throat> it wasn't, you know, super far 350 or something like that. But I'm like, I have the most unstable position because I'm in my pickup truck in the driver's seat, you know, and I'm, I'm going out, I've got the rifle rested on the mirror and I can't, I mean, this is something that is, this is, this was not a stable position. And the, the point of it was the animal was looking right at me. And I knew that if I made any move that they could discern, the animal was going to go away. And I'm over here thinking, man, I, I am really, really excited about some no guy steak, you know, and it's just like, I really wanted to get this animal. So making these little bitty minute adjustments, you know, to, to get my natural point of aim, wasn't even a thought, you know, my, my body did it on its own. The same way that whenever you're driving down the road, you can keep your vehicle in the center of your lane without telling yourself, Oh, I'm too far to the right. I better turn a little bit more to the left. I better veer a little bit more to the left to stay in the center. You don't have to tell yourself to do that anymore. It just does it. You don't, it's not even a conscious thought. And that's what, you know, I, whenever I was analyzing this, cause you know, I try to, I try to analyze these shots so that in the future it can, you know, if the, if it comes up again, I've already been there. You know what I mean? So make these little bitty micro adjustments. Sure. And, and I ended up taking the animal and I feel like that, you know, someone who had not put in the time of being in, you know, uncomfortable or awkward positions would not be able to really get their natural point of aim because they don't have the, they don't have the repetition or the mindset to take care of that. Whereas for me, my end goal was, you know, keeping, keeping that wobble, you know, inside the heart chamber of this animal and with no, with no conscious thought, I was able to pull it off. 
That's what you're talking about. It's by, by repetition, 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 repetition. You want to test your natural point of aim so much that you don't have to test it anymore. That it's just something that is innate. You know, whatever you see, you know, a, a tank trap, a barricade, whatever, uh, a pile of rocks, it doesn't make a difference. You know, you have, you know, you're, we, you know, go up there and shoot in Colorado, as you know, you know, some of those things, you know, you're in a position to where, you know, you have you know, this jagged rock that's sticking you, you know, right in the sternum because you have like this, you know, halfway standing, halfway, I don't know, position that you're trying to do. And how can you, based off of your past experience, be able to come up with a natural point of aim that's going to give you your best opportunity for success? And you're right. You, you just have to repeat it. You just have to do it over and over. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I do think that, you know, the benefits of, of going to a competition that's one of the high benefits because you didn't plan, you didn't plan the stage. You didn't plan the scenario. And even though they're kind of canned, there's something about when you set up a training exercise, you, you kind of know what to expect. Whereas, you know, if you, if you get, if, if somebody drops something on in your lap, uh, a course of fires is unexpected or more yeah. unexpected. And so I think it's fun to take different rifles, different loads, different, um, you know, setups, to competition for that because it's something that was set up out of your control. Um, you know, kind of like going out in the mountains or, you know, in natural terrain and shooting because you get what you get and the scenario presents itself. Um, that is a huge upside of, of going to a competition and with more and more competitions out there, I always encourage people to take, you know, rant once they get, once they get, you know, good with one setup, you know, start, start giving themselves, um, the opportunity to learn by taking away some of some of the equipment. You know, you mentioned the wobble zone thing, and I think that mm-hmm. you pointed it out to me for the first time. Actually, you know what? I'm going to back up again. I, I can say without any hesitation that that the best steak I've ever had, <laughs> the biggest steak I've ever had by like I'm, I don't want to say like the biggest steak by by like well it's an ounce or two bigger. Like I want to say. <laughs> at least a hundred percent larger than the previous largest steak I've ever had was mm-hmm. with you, was with you at your place, uh, cooked in that egg. Uh-huh. Um, man, it was amazing. I think about that. I mean, I, I can't believe how, how big and awesome it was, but, uh, anyway, my, my well, this is Texas, you know, so, yeah. <laughs> this is Texas. So we do have big steaks in Texas. Yeah, man. Um, all right. Wobble zone. When, mm-hmm. when you mentioned putting the wobble zone, when you put, put the, put your point of aim inside the wobble zone, that that's hard to describe, but it mm-hmm. works. I, I, not only, you know, did I confirm it with you in person that it worked and that, you know, I, I started doing it, shooting paper with you without any mm-hmm. bag, with just a sling. Mm-hmm. I, I talked about this with Frank a little bit and you mm-hmm. said, look, make sure your wobble's even make sure the point of aim is even and then make sure that when you break that shot, you're not trying to anticipate that wobble. Rather, you're just breaking a good shot with the point of aim in the center of that wobble zone. And my group size was pretty consistent with the group size that I would have had with a bag in all those positions. Mm-hmm. I've, I've continued to use that as a test for my trigger pull, um, making sure that I don't anticipate the shot or that I don't time any kind of wobble or vibration and I, and I think it's right. pretty remarkable how consistent that is. And it, and it kind of, um, but that anticipation is something that's real. And I think a lot of people mm-hmm. don't 
they don't understand the effect of when you anticipate um, it's easy to apply extra forces to the rifle. So when, when you mentioned before, um, you know, the equal and opposite reaction, the jumping um, of the barrels, like if the barrel jumps left or right or up or down, what are, what are some of the common um, kind of subconscious actions that some people do to throw the shots off? Oh sounds, yeah. A, like, a really, a really, really good example of that is, um, moving targets. So in our class, you know, I have, I have five movers. So in our class, we do a, a bunch of work with moving targets. And so I always tell them, you know, when I, we get into the beginning and I'm telling them there's two different methodologies, you know, there's ambush, there's tracking. And I, I then I start to list the errors and the errors that they're going to have initially is going to be, they might've been following through really well. But once they first see that steel target moving at 400 yards away, they're going to slap the trigger. They're going to fail to follow, follow through. So we get that solved. And so the other problem that you're going to have is you have limits. You have limit markers on where you can actually shoot the mover. It's not available past this marker. It's not available past this marker. So what you'll see them do is they'll say it's getting pretty close to that marker. And they'll say, I'm going to shoot now. And they'll, they'll press on the trigger and very, very slightly push forward with their shoulder. And what happens there is it causes the round to go low. And that is, you know, th those are the two, you know, things are uh, the one to where they say, I'm going to shoot now, you know, whenever you push forward and it, it shows up downrange. I mean, it shows up your, you know, your full, you know, three target links underneath the target just because you were anticipating that shot. You, and rather than just saying, I'm going to be smooth on the trigger. And whenever I get to the bottom of my breathing cycle, I'm going to press like I normally do. Once we get past that, and the reason is, is because they're, they're, they have, they're having more visual input. You know, up until this point, all we've been doing is shooting static targets. And so it's now they're seeing a target that is moving and there's limit markers and it, they're, they're trying to, you know, try out which, you know, which lead is going to work for them. And so there, there's so much other things that are going on downrange. And it's kind of like I, I like to say, Whenever we're, we're shooting a moving target, okay, and let's say, you know, we're, we're just, we're, we're fresh on it, we, we're just going to try out a mill and a half hold, okay, so if they shoot and they see on the reticle that the mill and a half didn't work, they should actually just use a mill. Well, ideally, what they'll do is on the next shot, run the bolt on the next shot, just hold a mill on it and get a hit, but invariably, that doesn't happen with, with a new shooter because, what they're doing is, is they're, they have, they're trying to make a correction, which should be based off of an environmental condition. And in this case, the environmental condition is a moving target. But any correction that they make for an environmental con condition is going to be completely washed out if what they actually need to be cor correcting for is a fundamental co condition at the shooter, the proper trigger press. Because we know that if we have piss poor trigger control, our rounds are going to go in the horizontal format. You know, they'll be unpredictable. And same thing with wind. So if now we're adding the, the component of a moving target, we need to make sure that if we have to change our lead in order to hit that target, that we're driving that trigger very consistent every single time. So our correction will actually mean something. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yep. Okay. And the yeah. same thing whenever you're out, you know, and you're shooting long distance, you know what I mean? And, and you see, let's say I'm shooting at a target that's, you know, I, I don't care how far it is, you know, beyond 600. All right. So I'm shooting it and I'm trying to dope out a rifle and I see that I hit half a mil low. Okay. Well, ideally what I do is I reach up 
I add five more clicks to the gun, pull the trigger, and I hit the target. And that would be that would be a correction for an environmental condition. But if I'm breaking at the top of my breathing cycle or middle of my breathing cycle, you know, that correction doesn't mean anything. You know, in other words, I have to drive the rifle the same every single time so that whenever I do correct for any condition, it's environmental, not fundamental. Right. Right. I think that's something that even though I probably try to say it all, almost every episode and it, it pretty much drove the development of the rifle craft target and test was, mm-hmm. you know, if you're, if you're shooting, it, you know, if you're shooting at a two MOA plate, but your positional group is three MOA, mm-hmm. you, you can't make an educated correction. And the only Correct. thing that you, the only thing that you can do is start to develop skills that are repeatable and trackable. So when you mentioned, you know, trigger errors are horizontal and wind errors are horizontal. Well, you can't control the wind, but you can control your trigger. So focus on trigger pulling, right? Because you want to work the things you can control until you're performing in a zone that's understandable. So, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of shooters have questions and about, you know, you name it. And basically my first question is, you know, let me, let me see a craft target really quick. And if, if, if their fundamental shooting ability can't be captured in the window of the target size, there's no way to isolate the answer. So, so you say, well, man, I missed because of wind. Well, you might, you might be right. But you may have missed. You may have missed because of trigger, right? You may have missed because yep. of anticipation. You may have missed because of all these reasons. And if you say, "Well, I got fucked because of the wind," you're you're um, you're failing at accountability. And 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 then that that a lot of people say, "Well, well, screw it," you know. Next time, and then they leave without that checklist of I need to work on my trigger finger to make sure that that isn't. A cause i need to work you know uh movers so that i don't anticipate just in case that was a reason but you know right. if, if if you if if you say well i missed because of the wind you're missing a really good training opportunity for yourself to say yes that might be true i could work on my wind calling but if it wasn't the wind what could it have been and how do i improve those things because no matter what that's going to add reps and it's going to add um, improvement, but, but it's going to take work. And I think just saying, wow, screw it. The wind shifted on me that shifts the blame to something else. And then those people likely don't go and practice anything, um, you know, or you get better at the things you do. So if you make up an excuse about the wind, you get better at making up wind excuses. (laughs) Well, did you see that they did that match out there in, in Arizona and their match T-shirt had had all of the excuses written on the back. Did you re- did no. you remember that shirt? <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, awesome. yeah, it was a, it, it, all the excuses, you know, and, and it was and it's exactly like what you're saying, you know. They you get you know get people say, well, oh well, you know, the wind changed or, or it did this or it did this. Well, yeah, the wind the wind does change. You know, down here we have real gusty winds. You know, it goes from you know uh, 12 miles an hour to 21 miles an hour. You know, during a gust. And so, you know, being able to understand, you know, what the wind is going on, that's to me, that is the, the fun, most fun time to shoot because it gives you that opportunity. But if I, if, if every shot that you make, you know, whether you're in the wind or not, it should teach you something or, or it should solve a problem for you. So, 
if I'm looking downrange and I'm in gusty winds and I'm thinking it's a it's a point eight and my numbers say it's a point eight and you know every bit of math says it's a point eight and then I shoot and it actually turns out that you know it wasn't a point eight you know it was a full mill. Well, that shot on the point eight, even though I missed it, it, it served as an opportunity for me to learn something. You see what I mean? Even though mm-hmm. I mean it, I, I learned more from you know my misses. Well, you know I I should have done that, but I'm at the point to where I'm I'm decently solid on my trigger control. You know, I've pretty well got that. Um, but even, even saying that, you know, every couple of months or so, you know, I'll go out, you know, to 200 yards on paper and just, you know, drive my fundamentals and see if, if I still am, or am I getting sloppy on my trigger control? Cause that happens, you know, you get sloppy on your trigger control and it's, then you go out and you're trying to say, okay, I got a great wind day to shoot, but gotten kind of rusty on the trigger control. Uh, I, I probably should, I probably should spend that time, even though I'd rather be on the tower shooting long, I should probably spend that time, you know, dry firing or, you know, paper at 200 just to make sure that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm good to go on my fundamentals. So you're, you're exactly right. And your rifle craft targets are, are genius for that. You know, it's, it's, it's a, it's really a fantastic tool. And I I hope more and more people will take advantage of that. Yeah. I mean, I I think some people forget that it's just a base level check you know, to say, yep. all right, you know, where are we, where are we working so that when we go do other things, we can fall back and have explanations. You know, if, if 99% right. of my shots are good in this category, that's probably not why I missed, but right. you know, you never rule that out. Now you mentioned, um, trigger control. And I just talked to a guy, Boyd, who's a really good rimfire shooter. And he's also mm-hmm. a really good air rifle shooter. And he mentioned that when he shoots a lot of those things, when he comes back to center fire, the first thing that he notices is that his trigger pull starts to get sloppy. But I also know that you're a fan of rimfire. So do mm-hmm. you have any tips for people that shoot a lot of rimfire or shoot back and forth on how to maintain that, even if those rifles might be more forgiving in that regard? Uh, yeah, I, in I don't fact, know we had a, we had a, yeah, we had a guy out here yesterday that same thing. He's big rimfire shooter and he's, he's, you know, and center fire as well, but he had been, he really focused on the rimfire lately and he had developed a little bit of a flinch, you know, and it's kind of, you know, how can you solve that? Shoot with a partner, do ball and dummy drills, dry fire. You know, there's a lot of different ways to solve that, but the, the value of the rimfire in my mind is that, <clears throat> you know, we, we, we have all of our fundamentals, you know, natural point of aim, sight, picture, breathing, trigger control and follow through. And as everyone knows, trigger control and follow through really go hand in hand. And so the issue with the rim fire is on our center fire guns, we're shooting, you know, above 28, 2750, 2800, in my case, 3000. But then whenever you pick up the rim fire, you know, you're in that thousand foot per second range. And so the bullet is actually staying in the bore, like close to three times longer than it is on center fire. And so your follow through needs to be really good. I, I use 22 as a good training tool. And I, I think that I'm just even going to take this even, even further. Uh, I'm going to start looking for just a, and <laughs> a reproduction of a flintlock rifle. You know what I mean? And so there, man, your follow through better be good <laughs> because it takes a while for that bullet to get out of the board. But <clears throat> that that's why I like the 22 and, and the training aspect of it. The, the only issue is that sometimes whenever I'm going to go back to center fire, you know, it's okay. I was shooting out here. I'm not wearing any protection, ear protection or anything else. And now I'm up on center fire and this thing actually moves when I shoot it and there's noise and everything else. So you kind of got to, I don't know, get, get yourself, um, 
desensitized to the recoil and the noise again. And so it, it doesn't take long. You know, you usually usually knock it out with, you know, a series of, you know, five really good dry presses. And, you know, if it in an extreme case, like what we've done, you know, more recently is, you know, go back to the ball and dummy drill, which is basically the person does not know if the gun's going to go off or not because they don't know if it has a, a live round or just an empty shell case in the chamber. Did that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah, for okay. sure. Okay. Now, I, in Colorado, we have low humidity and... Mm -hmm. You know, the, the temperatures, uh, the atmosphere is just about as different as it can get from from uh, South Texas. Mm -hmm. You guys have humidity. And mm -hmm. with humidity and temperatures, you guys get, you can have pretty thick mirage. Now, when I've been out there, that hasn't been like extremely terrible. But right. what, what are some things that you've seen shooting mirage that you've learned over the years, I've heard people say, you know, aim low or aim high, or I, I don't know what the rule of thumb is there. Like, uh, um, is that something that you can train or is that just something that you have to kind of deal with? Because I noticed when I've been in heavy mirage, spotting my hits or misses is difficult. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, and yet, people that live around it can perform really well through it. And so it's something that I've been curious about, you know, you know, because you live and have access to Mirage, what yeah. are some things that you look for and what are some kind of notes? If somebody's going to travel from a place with low Mirage to heavy Mirage that might help them look for something or, or behave in a way that, that, that'll allow them to get more hits. Well, the first thing that they need to do is get off of, 35 and 25 power back the power off that's that's going to be your very your most important tool in in shooting in mirage is try to go low power and it's kind of like the those there was back in the 90s there was a, a group out of south africa who built a they built a gun on a, on a 20 millimeter platform as a as a sniper rifle and it was, of course, a, it wasn't available in the United States and they just did it, but they, it was made to shoot stuff, you know, like bridges, trucks, things like that. And it was, you know, they, they were shooting it out, you know, ELR, man, they were out, you know, 2,500, you know, they were doing it. And that gun came stock with a straight six power optic. And the reason was, is because, you know, people think that if I got to shoot really far, then I need a lot of power. Well, I, I'd say it's the opposite. If you have heavy mirage, back down your power because that mirage, if you're magnifying your image 25 times, you're also magnifying the mirage 25 times. And so if you're watching through your optic as you go from a high power to a low power, you're really literally going to hear your eyes say, ah, that's better. You know, you, you're able to see through that a little bit more. Now, back to, you know, what does what does the mirage do, you know, to your image? Well, it's like if you take a pencil and you're standing next to an aquarium and you stick the pencil in there, the pencil, you would actually swear that the pencil's crooked now because, you know, you're looking through water. And that's what you're, you know, the, that's what Mirage is, basically the humidity in the air. So there are some schools of thought that says, if I've got a blowing Mirage, where I'm seeing that target is actually higher than the target actually is. And so there's some, there's some validity to that because, you know, I, I used to do that a long time ago. Now, if I look at Mirage, I, I just kind of use, okay, I, I know that, you know, it's going right to left. So that tells me that the wind is blowing and I'm going to back down my power. And whenever I back down my power, I'm not seeing that, that target jump in my image as if I would 
if I was up on a higher power. So at a higher power, I'm, I can see where that would be true, but I don't face that anymore because if I go out to the tower and, you know, I'm, I'm shooting, I don't really care how far it is. You know, if I'm, if I'm shooting out there in a mirage, you know, I'm coming down to eight power. I, and then it seems like all those mirage problems get severely minimized. Heck, that's, that's, that's even better to know. I think it's easy to get kind of caught into your scope, right? To think, oh man, yeah. I got to zoom in and got, you yeah. know, so man, that's an awesome trick. Yeah. And it, it works, you know, and it's kind of like the Frank and I were talking about it and it's just like, you get into those conditions, like give me an ACOG, you know what I mean? I'd be, I'd be better off with just a straight four ACOG. And so it, you know, you can still, you know, you want to have enough power to where you can see your graduations, you know, for your wind holds and things like that. But after a while, you kind of know where those graduations are. You know, I mean, you you don't really have to look down and say, okay, this is 0 0.2, 0 0.4, 0 0.6. You can kind of just pick up your rifle. And again, it comes from repetition and looking through the scope. You know where your half a mil is. You know, you don't really, I'm not really focusing too much on the, on the graduations and the reticle anymore. So I can kind of back down that power a little bit more. The other thing that I do is whenever I go to a target and I haven't seen that target, I haven't, I don't know anything about it. But the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to measure it in my reticle. Okay. I'm going to measure that target. And so if I look at a target and th this target is 0.8 wide. So as I'm engaging or getting ready to engage that target, what I want to do is I want to have a plan to know what happens if I miss. My miss is probably going to be a win thing um, because, you know, just ballistics are ballistics. So if I shoot and I, I'm holding, uh, I'm holding and I can tell that I went to the right side of the target. Well, I need to reduce my, my hold. And so if I go to the right side of the target, I'm going to get it in my mind because I've already measured the target as 0.8 wide. I'm not going to make any correction less than half that. I won't make a correct, a 0.2 correction because I'm not trying to shoot to the edge of the target. I'm going to make a, a full 0.4 correction, you know, back to the left just to make sure that I'm utilizing as much real estate as I possibly can. And where this does come into play is if you do have that mirage that's kind of shaky on your image and you're, you know, you, it's down here, it gets heavy. And so it does make that image a little bit shaky. It assures that I'm giving myself the best opportunity for success. I'm giving myself equal error all the way around the central point where I want to hit on that target. So if I am having a mirage that's, you know, coming across and messing me up, I can, in other words, I can hedge my bet and I can also hedge my bet on, the wind gust a little bit. Does that make sense? <laughs> totally. Totally. Yeah. I like that. See, man, I love talking to people. <laughs> it's just, it's fun to, it's fun to hear this kind of stuff. Now, Frank told me a story about, um, you making, uh, two off two consecutive offhand shots and, and, and emphasize the fact that in order to guarantee that, you would hit the second shot, you know, you spent time checking and rechecking to make sure that your NPA was where you felt you were going to be able to make a shot. Right. So, you know, not only, I mean, I think, you know, he said it because you, you're able to kind of put your money where your mouth is, you knew what you needed to do and you were able to demonstrate it. And I think that that, um, you know, you don't, you don't hear a lot of stories like that because now it, people just, I don't know. I don't, you just don't hear much about offhand shooting or mm -hmm. um, taking the time mm -hmm. to take a good shot versus, you know, how fast can you shoot, right? You hear people say, oh, right. oh my build and break splits are six seconds with a one second follow up and think, okay, well, okay, but that, your hit rate. 
<laughs> yeah, and that, and that could be you know equipment, and it could be you know it, again, like it goes it goes back to it could be a lot of things, but but we don't know uh, what that is versus um, the mentality of let's do it right and let's do everything that we mm-hmm. can to make sure that first we hit our shots and then we increase our speed and capability. And then we were, you and I were talking and, and you talked about a, uh, a, a sniper that had kind of an astounding body count in a short period of time and, and how he, you know, trained and grew up. And I was just hoping maybe you could, cause, cause to me, you know, you, you know, the story of you and then the story of him kind of embodies this idea of first, we need to focus on skills and the applications we, you know, will speak for the development of those skills. And, and um, it's easy to get confused when we start layering in all sorts of other numbers like competition scores and, and, right. and, and so on and so forth. But I think that, 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 that the example, the story of you and then the story of the sniper um, to me really embody kind of the the principle of never forget to focus on the core principles and build your base. Yep. First. Yeah. I can't, I can't hold a candle to that guy. Um, and what you and I were speaking about it, it's, um, I had the really good fortune to go to a competition in Finland, uh, in Helsinki. And it's, uh, the, if you're, you know, it's like I told you, if you're in the United States, you know who Elvis Presley is, but if you're from Sweden or Finland, you know who Simo Haya is. And, um, you know, there's, there's some, there's some, uh, discrepancies on how many, how many kills he had, but it was over 500. Um, and so this is, this is pretty special when you consider that it was during what they call the hundred day war. And so that was it, you know, it was just a hundred days. I mean, he was in, he was at less than four months. And so, uh, he grew up, you know, out on a farm, you know, where, you know, they did everything farming, you know, sustenance, you know, just for to live. And so not a lot of money. And if he went out and he had a cartridge and he's shooting a moisten, if he had a cartridge, that cartridge, it constituted wealth. I mean, it constituted wealth. It also constituted food. It, there was a lot of meaning in just the cartridge that he had. And so if he would go out in the day, he better come back with a reindeer on his back or that cartridge unfired. So every time he pulled the trigger, he was, it was like he was throwing down, you know, equivalent to us, probably 500 bucks. You see what I mean? And so whenever he pulled the trigger, he had to make sure that everything was right. And so it, it was astounding. You know, he was, he was getting guys that were, you know, beyond 500 meters, open sights, you know, a, a, a Moisen rifle. I mean, he was, this was his fundamentals. There's no way you can wrap up a count like that unless your fundamentals are exactly perfect every time under a variety of different situations, which you, this kind of the, the whole conversation that you and I were having earlier, you know, how can, how can I, this, this in, in your terms, that guy's a rifleman. You know what I mean? He's not just a man with a rifle. He's a rifleman. And he knew how to use that tool to solve problems and the best way to employ that tool and how that tool worked. And he just, he had that completely down. I mean, the dude was, dude was amazing. I mean, absolutely amazing. They send snipers over after him. He killed them all. They send the sniper instructors after him. He killed all of them. They send mortar guys. They finally got him, <laughs> you know? So it's kind of, 
but he did survive. I mean, he, 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 um, he survived the war, but that was it's just an amazing body count. Now, granted, he's probably in a pretty target rich environment, but nobody else had a count like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. And, and I like the fact that, you know, he was trained by going out every day and taking a single shot, you know, and, and, and then your imagination obviously takes over and, and all that stuff. But I think it goes to say that, first of all, you don't need to shoot a lot of live rounds if you practice mm-hmm. whatever the fun, whatever he was practicing, uh, he was doing it right, <laughs> you know, and then no every question. bullet, no every bullet counts and every bullet means something. And so mm-hmm. I've noticed seeing shooters over the years that, that there's a couple styles. And, and one of the styles that I think is pretty common is somebody shoots and they miss. And then it seems like some kind of switch happens and they just start shooting like crazy. Like, Oh, this was unexpected. So maybe mm-hmm. if I shoot, you know, 10 or 12 or 15 rounds really fast at the target, um, that's going to correct the problem or, or, you know, or something like that. So, <clears throat> oh, yeah. so, so that one tendency of, of like, Oh, something, something happened. So let me do a bunch of things really fast to see if that fixes it versus stop, assess why that may have happened, slow down, take fewer shots and try to isolate rather than just, just, you know, shoot a bunch more like, Oh my God, I had a shot that went an inch left of where I meant it to be. So let me just take, you know, another magazine or two really fast. (laughs) Just, and, and I think, man, Hey, I don't, I don't think about things that way. So it really stands out. And I, and, but, but the, the other side that goes back to the story is, um, it's expensive, right? Nowadays, every bullet we shoot is probably a buck 50, right? Or for, mm-hmm. You know, for the most part, everybody. So, you know, you screw up and take 10 more shots. You just threw 15 bucks for, yep. because you panic because you did something wrong rather than, rather than panic, stop and reflect and analyze and think about all the possible reasons, maybe dry fire, maybe, you know, and then, and then try to, you know, do it right. And then, you know, maybe a couple shots will tell you whether it was corrected and the mindset to that, because I do think that trying to get the most progress for the least amount of money is, is a goal, at least something that I consider a higher quality skill set or a higher quality thing. Like if, if you can achieve a goal, you know, faster and for less money, I think that that is commendable. And so I'm always thinking about how can you train and achieve the same results for less money, you know, in a, in the same amount of time or a shorter amount of time for a, I want to figure out how to get people's skills faster and then quantify like, well, how much does it cost? Because uh, although I, I really rub people the wrong way, well, I, you know, not, I don't know when it, when exactly it was, but I, I said, if somebody paid me, you know, I'd probably go and win competitions and, and get prizes and so on and so forth. And it offended people that I could say that because they felt like <clears throat> it discredited their work and the amount of the amount of work and effort that it takes and that, that wasn't my intention but my intention was 
there's a different, I think there's a different quality to it when you're spending a lot of money um, or, you know, you're spending a lot of someone else's money to do something versus, you know, being very careful and efficient on how you get from point A to point B. So, so do you have any, do you have any thoughts on, you know, how somebody, let's say they can't, I mean, a shooting is expensive either way, whether we like it or not, but yeah, but there are definitely some people that, you know, would like to get better and they hear about, mm-hmm. you know, shooter that, you know, I mean, if you look, you know, it's, I don't think it's unusual for, for some competitors to be spending 20, 30, $40,000 a year to shoot. That's a lot of pay to play. And there's yeah. a lot of people that don't have that kind of disposable income, but would like to get Correct. better anyway. So how, how does somebody that doesn't want to spend, you know, basically like above the poverty line <laughs> sums of money? Well, um, this whole this whole talk that you've just been giving, I'm just sitting, sitting here with a smile on my face. Um, going back to, you know, if that bullet doesn't go where I want then I'm just going to shoot a whole magazine to it. And, you know, it's like, um, you know, if I throw enough lead down range, I'm going to hit something eventually. Um, and then it goes back to the quote, you know, there's a famous quote in, in, uh, in the shooting world. It says you can't shoot fast enough to uh, fast enough to win. Uh, you can't feel you know, something like that. You know, you, you, if the, in other words, the speed that you put, you know, rounds down range, if you're missing, it's not, you can't miss fast enough to win or something like that. And so, um, yeah, that, that happens, you know, and it's, and just to, just to kind of look at, at that aspect of it, you know, if, if, like I said earlier, if I have a miss that, that miss to me is a, a, a small lesson that I just paid for. And I don't want, I don't want that lesson to go to just be wasted. I don't want that lesson to be wasted. I want to know why I missed, you know, what did I do? And so that is certainly not the time to start pulling the trigger more is start to figure out why did I have that miss and what information did I get from that miss? How can I take that information that I got from the miss and apply it to the next shot so that I get a hit? In other words, it boils down to believe the bullet. You see what I mean? And mm-hmm. so that's one of the, that's one of the things that you, that you have to realize. And I I've seen it over and over and over. Now, the, the other aspect of that, the other aspect that, that you were talking about was, you know, how could somebody go and get skills that, you know, and then, you know, get, very good in a short period of time without, you know, just a major outlay of money. Well, the first answer and the short answer is get training from a reputable instructor and they're out there. Uh, that would be the first thing. That's where you're going to get miles ahead. And it's like the, I can't tell you how many times this year we're doing a, a regular civilian class and the guys, they'll say, Hey, do you have a rifle to rent? Sure. Sure, we got a rifle to rent because what they want, they're they're going about it the right way. They don't want to just go and buy a bunch of stuff. And then it turns out that they have to buy different stuff because it's not suited for the way they want to shoot. And it's gone off in both directions. I've had them leave here and go and get a hunter weight rifle because that's what they're doing is they're hunting. You know, they wanted something that they could carry easily and everything else. I've had other people come out, you know, they'll they'll shoot these guns and then they'll go full blown, you know, accuracy international. But what they did was they educated themselves first educate yourself what what is my goal well the the best way that you can educate yourself is go and take a class not only for the information you're going to get from the class but you're also going to see the other students that are in the class what equipment they have you know what they're getting away with and it's like the you can you know you can go i mean the reality is you can go and you can put 15 grand into a rifle an optic you know the all of the ancillary gear and everything else 
And then you find out, okay, I don't really need to do that because I can get away with, you know, a, a, a gun that, you know, maybe it's not as sexy or anything else, but it's in six, five Creedmoor and it's pretty accurate. And this guy in class had it and, you know, he was, he was making all of his hits. So that kind of gives them, and, and you have people that come from different levels of income. So they will decide then what they can afford and what they can't afford and what they need and what they don't need. Once that's done, then we have to figure out, okay, what is our ongoing cost? Our, our ongoing cost for shooting is ammunition. Let's say I've got all the equipment. And like you say, ammunition is expensive. Every time we pull the trigger, it's a buck 50. So we want to make sure that we're maximizing that. That's when it has to go back to the attitude. One, I've got the training. So I'm able, I'm able to see what the bullet is telling me. Because every time you, every time you pull the trigger, you're, you're kind of starting a dialogue with you and your equipment. Uh, and you're, you're saying, is what I did this time, did it work? Okay, so the bullet is going to, it's going to tell you, okay, yes, it worked or no, it didn't. Reflect on that. You know, what did I do right? What did I do wrong? Um, if it's, you know, out at, and you're shooting at 100 and, you know, you're looking at, you know, little one inch dots that you're shooting and you're noticing that, you know, your, your group size is a heck of a lot wider than it is tall. Well, then that tells you I need to work on my trigger control. Solve those problems before you go over and start and try to go, you know, 850 yards in a 35 mile an hour wind. You know, we, in other words, break those things up, learn, learn the steps the right way so that whenever you are going out and you are shooting longer distances, you're not screwing yourself by not following the fundamentals of marksmanship. The, the fundamentals are going to save you more money than anything. I mean, there's just no question about it. And so in answer to your question, the, another thing that you could do is dry fire. Um, that reticle will tell you if you pay attention. And even if I'm dry firing, I'm watching, what does that reticle do that instant that that trigger breaks, you know, it, it's going to do something or it might not do anything. And the goal that you want is for it not to do anything that way. Whenever the question becomes, you're asking the bullet, how was my wind call? You know, it wasn't because of your trigger finger. And the answer that the bullet is going to give you is something that is actually valid. And so you can't do that by just throwing a bunch of rounds downrange because you're not taking the time to reflect, to take notes. Um, you, you know all about this with your with your your craft drill. I mean, it's just that is that is something. That, take your time, you know. Take your time to actually learn and say where is my deficiency? How do I how do I solve that deficiency in the most efficient way possible? And the most efficient way is going to also equate to the least expensive. Man, that's awesome. I don't even know. I'm like left speechless. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I mean, that's like the mic drop moment, right? Um, but I can't mic drop because I want to talk to you about the brawl a little bit because All right. um, you have uh, like a cool competition that's been going on a long time. It's different. Mm -hmm. I guess like I want to say like it's irreverent, you know, because I look up to that kind of irreverent attitude but it's not irreverent. It it's a it's a competition that largely tests fundamentals in a way that that I've never seen at any other competition that I've been to because it's not uncommon for you to shoot paper. It's not uncommon for you to shoot um, a lot of like high round count. Like a, I think I've shot a twenty round stage at the brawl, mm -hmm. and I've shot a mm -hmm. one round stage or. Or, or a few round counts. I guess, yeah, what, there was a one round stage where you kind of climbed up a ladder and shot around at like 
40 or 50 yards or something like that. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and, and you, you know, there's, there's advantages to being able to use a sling. There's advantages to being able to shoot movers. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's kind of a free for all You, you go and, um, you know, you just go shoot. You, there's no squads. You just have to be done. No. You have to be done when the time's up. And and I think like, so for, and it's, it doesn't have like allegiance to any league because it doesn't have to, it's got a, it's got a good following and kind of a community almost to itself uh, of people that have been doing it for a long time and just kind of like the festival atmosphere and it's coming up. And not only that, but people that are new, they can come to you, you offer train ups for the days prior to the event to not only teach people mm-hmm. fundamentals, but also kind of get them kind of tuned into, to, to the, to the stuff that's coming. So I think it's like, it's a really cool opportunity for a new shooter. It's mm-hmm. not intimidating in that, you know, there's no squads. You walk around, you have fun, everybody's helpful. Um, and it's, it's got a nice diversity nice diversity of skill set. So, so I want, you know, just, just to let my listeners that aren't familiar with, with your match, um, just, just tell them a little bit about it and what's coming and when it is. And, and if they still want to come, can they still come and, um, you know, where do they fly to and how do they sign up for it? Because I, I, I probably, you know, if, if there's a, there's only one or two other matches that I think people that haven't competed that I think would be, a good introduction to it. In fact, I, I, I guess I, I would probably say that as a first match, the brawl is probably the best entry level match, you know, aside from a guardian as a way to see shooting the, the, the guardians are cool in a, in a different way, but, um, mm-hmm. but the brawl is pretty amazing and it's Friday, Saturday. So you can get home Sunday and not, you know, and still kind of finish out your weekend. Um, which I think is awesome also. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's coming up uh, February 17th and 18th. And that's the, like you say, it's a Friday, Saturday and the Monday previous to that, we have a three day train up and it's just, it, it is for newer shooters. You know, I talk about the fundamentals. It's like a normal class. Um, and that, that is kind of gives them, you know, a little bit more to feel at home while they're here. You know, it gives them a couple of days shooting on the range. We don't do any of the same uh, stuff in the train up that we do for the match. Um, but again, there's, they're similar and, you know, you can kind of get an idea, okay, this is what's expected. And, you know, here's, here's my time hacks. Here's what I have to do. Um, there's a lot of things about the brawl that are different. Um, one of the things that's different is it's not like you say, it's not uncommon for us to shoot paper or for us to shoot targets that are really close and where that comes from. It comes from the fact that we, we train a lot of law enforcement. And so we try to, we try to be a clearinghouse of information for these guys. So I got, I got police that come in from New York and then I have police that come in from San Antonio. Well, the New York guys, they have a lot of stories and and ways that they've solved problems and shots that they've had to make. And so they come they're here at different times, but we can, you know, me and Lindy and, you know, and and whoever's helping us, they can kind of relay that back to the new set of people. And so all those shots are, you know, all those shots are basically inside a hundred yards. So that's why we want to do that. I mean, we have it, it's called long range rifle, but you know, sometimes you're going to use that rifle really close. And so that's why we'll, we may have a shot that's really close. We may not, you know, it it just depends on, on what we're doing, you know, on that particular, that particular brawl. Um, so, and people get a little bit, you know, freaked out about that, but 
uh, don't get freaked out about it unless you're scoring 100% on it. And it's pretty rare for somebody to get 100% on, on those stages. But again, it is let you know that, you know, what is the, what's the best gun in the world? It's the one that you have in your hand. And if your target presents itself and it is, you know, 30 yards away, can you make that shot? You know, can you make that shot? Can you thread that needle exactly where that bullet needs to go? We've actually done them where we had a shot that was 11 feet, one inch. And that came from an actual law enforcement engagement with a sniper rifle. And so we created that. Um, another guy that came here, it turned out it was a, it, it was, it was a strange thing. It wasn't a far shot. It was across the street, but he was actually, his hide site was inside a house and he was actually sitting on a toilet. And he had a sling wrapped around the doorknob. And so we've done that. <laughs> you know, we, we kind of do those shorter shots as a, you know, the, you know, this law enforcement are having to do those things, you know, fortunately not all the time, but they do happen. And then of course we have the longer ones and, you know, we'll go out there and we'll have, we'll have something we've done. We've done an event called frustration ladder. And that's where you're, you're getting, you know, a shot at, you know, every range from 300 to a thousand. And, you know, if, and it kind of a KYL type thing, if you, if you miss, you have to go back or you can stop and, you know, maintain the points that you have. Then there's also the thinking aspect of it. You can go up and you can do a KYL rack at 400, or you can take one shot at a thousand you pick, you know, and if it's, if it's one of those things to where, you know, you're going to decide, am I going to go for 10 rounds for possibly you know, the, 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 uh, the points for it, or am I going to make one shot and get 10 points? You know, it's, it's, uh, it makes you decide. And we've seen people, we've seen people do it both ways. Um, there was one guy that came and we had those shots. He, he was going up to the tower for that. And he just carried one cartridge. He knew what he was going to do and went up there, center punched a thousand yard target. So we try to have a good, you know, range of stuff. You know, you're, we're shooting off of you know, the normal stuff. We've got barricades, we've got culverts, tank traps. Um, we've done, we have a 550 cord shot to where your rifle is actually rested in a 550 simulating that, you know, I wrap a piece of 550 cord around this tree. And now that's to, you know, give me my alternate, alternate position. You know, how can I make this shot? There's movement. You know, we have, we have some left shoulder shots. We have some right shoulder shots. And it's very rare in competitions these days to have a stage that is just sling supported. And we have always done that since day one, we have at least one stage that is just sling supported, but you know, it, it's, um, it's a lot of fun. You know, it, we, we really enjoy doing it. You know, we get to see a lot of our friends that, you know, come over and over and over to this match. And it, it was really, it, it's really been a, a good thing for rifles only to do that. I, I enjoy it. And we, we end that if people want to hang out on Saturday evening, we, you know, barbecue, as you know, and, uh, there's typically, there's typically a beer or two around after it's all over. <laughs> but yeah, if y'all want to come in, you can go to the website, riflesonly.com and, and get signed up, you know, come and do the match or come and do the train up and the match, whatever you want to do. Heck yeah. And if you don't have a sling, he's got a shop there. And my favorite sling is his carving sling. Even for the bolt gun ones, it's got like a stretchy yeah. back. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I've got a lot of slings, but that's one that, that is my favorite. In fact, yeah, I, uh, it comes on and off most of the rifles that I'm using that day. And I, you know, just yeah. throw everything else to the side. I think that's pretty awesome. Now, the one thing that, that didn't come up is a rule that, that I'm really surprised is not more universal, but you have everybody not only, you know, uh, bolt back, but any transition from one position to the next, you remove mm -hmm. the magazine. Mm hmm. 
And and do you want to you want to go into that element of safety? And sure. Also yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, it's it's a it's a safety thing. It's a safety thing, but it's also something else. You know that you know we've we've been doing you know all sorts of classes out here you know forever. And you know we'll do handgun, we'll do carbine, we do precision rifle. And you know one of the things that whenever you know we're doing a combat handgun class or combat carbine class is you know what it, what what do you do when your gun goes empty? Well, there's a certain procedure to where you have economy of motion. You have the best way to get an empty gun back loaded again to where it can actually do you some good. So any of the classes that you go to mine or, you know, anybody that you go out there and you're taking handgun or carbine, you're going to spend a lot of time learning the mechanics of the emergency reload. You know, that's just, that's just something that you do. I mean, by the end of, if you go for a one week class or even a three day class, by the end of that, you're going to know the mechanics of that emergency reload. Your, your magazine is going to be in a certain place. Uh, you're going to have a certain action with your right hand, a certain action with your left hand so that you can get that gun back up to where it can do you some good. The problem is most people do not practice that with their precision rifle. And you see it all the time because, you know, we have that rule here. And it's, it's, uh, you know, part of it is part of it is safety, but it's more of a training aspect. We are a training facility for crying out loud. That's what we do. So why do we treat our precision rifle different? Why don't we practice the emergency reload, you know, with our precision rifle? And the biggest part of that is just finding that magazine hole. And so we have someone that comes in and they're not adept at it. You'll see them try to get that magazine in and they'll miss, they'll miss it. And it's just like, to me, it's one of the most basic training items that you should have. You should be able to keep your gun in a condition that it can do you some good. And part of that is knowing how to get more rounds into that gun. And so once people start to train that, now you can see people, you know, that they'll load up, they never miss with their precision rifle. And the reason is they're practicing it the same way they would do is if they were shooting a handgun or a carbine. And so I know it kind of rubs some people the wrong way. They say, oh, there are other places, you know, all we have to do is have our magazine, our bolts back. You know, I get that. And, and that's fine. Uh, that's absolutely fine. You know, the other people can, you know, do it any way they want. It's not a, it's not a knock against them. They have a, a certain way that they like to do things, but we like for our competitions to also have a bit of a training aspect. You know, one, how, how am I manipulating my gun? Two, how am I having proper time management? Three, how am I having proper fundamentals? You know, I want to make sure that all of, I want to make, you're not just coming here for a prize. I want you to leave here with knowing a little bit more about yourself, uh, a weak point that you have or a strong point that you have, but I don't want it to be something that, you know, you just come in, you know, here's your stages, boom. At the end of the day, you take nothing home with you other than the fact that you got something off the prize table and, you know, you fired some rounds. I want there to be, I, I want there to be a learning aspect as well. And that's part of that. Man, I love that. I, I love the idea that you can go and learn a few areas of weakness that you can train for the next year and come back and see how much you improved. Even though yeah. I hate the idea that certain matches are only once a year, there, yeah. there, there's only a couple of those. And those are the ones that I feel like you can go to and learn something every time. And I, I get yeah. it. You can go to any match and learn something every time, but I have a very interesting story on that. Um, you know, the, the thing about it is whenever I first got into this, you know, the, the, the big thing was never let anything touch your barrel. You know what I mean? We, we pay a lot of money for these free floated barrels and all this other shit. And so I thought, and this is years and years and years ago, I thought to myself, 
what happens? You know, what happens if something touches my barrel? Does, does the gun blow up? You know, what, what happens? So I went out and I, I put a piece of wire between two posts and I rested the barrel on the wire and I shot and I hit high and then I shot again and the bullet went through the same hole at the same height. Then I shot again and it did exactly the same. The gun was grouping. It was just grouping high. And so I wanted to, you know, come this out with a, with a training aspect because I could see to where someone who's doing this for a living, they might find themselves in a position that would not allow them to deploy their bipod. And because of debris or debris or something else, there might be touch something touching the barrel. And so if that was the case, they have two choices. Do we go ahead and make the shot or do we not make the shot on a shot that really, really needs to be made? If you can read between the lines on that one. Sure. So I, I did all that, you know, and then we started training it and we, we do it with, you know, the police guys and everything else in case they have to, you know, they're in an alleyway. And the only thing that they can, you know, deploy their rifle is, you know, through a chain link fence. Well, they need to know what's going to happen with that shot. They need to know what's going to happen and repeat it. And we make them log it in their logbook. So they've trained for it in case it ever can, comes up. So over the years, I know of at least two situations where it actually has been used in, in real encounters. So uh, there was value in that. Well, I brought it to the competition. Uh, I have 10 barricades out there and I put wire between each of those barricades. It was there for training, but I thought we're going to do this as an event. And so we told everybody what it was and mine's exploded. I mean, literally brains were coming out of people's ears. There's no way, you know, I have no idea what's going to happen. All right. You're getting ready to learn. You're getting ready to learn something that that whole thing, that whole big deal, never let anything touch your barrel or, you know, dogs and cats are going to live together and all kinds of shit like that. The world's going to fall apart. What if you have to make that shot? What if that is the position that you're presented and it's a shot that absolutely has to be made? So they shot it, you know, and, and it was, it was kind of, it was kind of strange, you know, that the, the reaction, but they liked it. And so a year passes by and now, I mean, you see these guys who were here before they've taken uh, a Sharpie and they have put marks on their barrel in like one inch increments. If I'm, if I'm out towards the end, it's going to deflect this much. If I'm putting up right next to the, you know, what, what's the stage going to be? Is it going to have to be, you know, near the muzzle or does it have to be right up next to the forearm? But they knew they went out and they trained that they practiced that. So if we did present it to them at a match, they could grab up the points for that. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's another example of something that's uh, uh, unorthodox, but it makes you a better rifleman because you know more. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I haven't, um, it's just another thing to write down. Cause I haven't, I have put the, I have done the barrel point of impact shift, but I didn't mark an inch increment. So that, that's a good, good point of clarification that it's different as you scale out. But, um, yeah, it is. Man, I love that. And I it's all, that the only thing that's happening. Go ahead. The only thing that happened is you're bending the barrel. That's all. You know, it's no big deal. Yeah. I mean, and, and right. Guys that work with guns, a lot of times their semi-automatic platforms have different point of impacts from prone to positional because of the barrel nut and, and the way that the yep. barrel drooping and stuff like that. So it makes sense that mm-hmm. if, if that's what you have, you should have a solution for, getting around it versus just saying, well, screw it, just get another rifle or something. Well, I'd rather know what, what I have does. Yeah. And, and then be able to apply that to other things also with that kind of information. Sure. 
Um, for sure. The, yeah, it, it, it's awesome because I can I can totally imagine you know minds and brains exploding when you have them do something that they haven't seen at a competition. But I think that what justifies that is you interacting with somebody who's worked and had a scenario in the real world that said, look, this, this was the available option, you know, time and opportunity didn't allow for us to make it any different stability and consistency did. This is how we, you know, solved the problem and it worked or it didn't work. And now we need to understand, you know, why it didn't work. And ideally, right. You test that on paper in a range where the consequence of missing is a good learning opportunity because those are rifleman skills. It's not rifleman skills. Aren't the ones that are popular. They're the ones that are universal and, right. and, um, you know, putting your rifle on a tree branch. I was, you know, I was, I, while, while you were talking, I was imagining like, well, if there's a wire there, I could put my chassis on it, but if it's a chain link fence, I can't. So right. that's a, that's a really good example. Like, so, so if, if somebody's building a barricade or something like that, because some some of the barricades I think are ridiculous, um, like the floating boat tank things. Like most of us, I mean, yep. it's probably fun to do once, but realistically, I bet all of the listeners can imagine a chain link fence. Um, yeah, for sure. Not not a little ducky boat, you know, and us <laughs> out on that ducky boat with chains and laying down on a on a. Well, we actually had an event at, at one of our brawls that you actually you were actually on a boat in a pond and you were actually on a boat. It wasn't a chain. It was a boat that was actually floating. And it was right <laughs> after it was right after um, it was right after the Marsh thing with that that movie with Tom Hanks where the seals, the seals uh, took out those terrorists, you know, from the from a, yeah. from a boat. And so we we kind of recreated that very short shot. Um, you know, and you were actually floating. I mean, I, I put you in the front of the boat and I had a little mercury motor backed up, put you in the middle of the pond. Hey, there's your target. Boom. <laughs> it was fun, yeah. but that's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> I, mean, I think that, that, you know, in terms of, 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 uh, applicability, like we can imagine shooting off a chain link fence or something like that. Right. And then if you didn't, if For you sure. didn't think like, Oh shit, my barrel's actually going to be on there. And I was thinking, well, the time it would take me to set up a tripod and use the chain link fence, like a loophole you know, odds are with the angle of fire, it would be much more complicated than simply resting the barrel on the chain link fence. Knowing and if you've done it before, yeah, if, you, shot. if you've done it before, it's going to be repeatable and it, it is, it's extremely repeatable and, and it's an, it's another tool, you know, it's another way to say, okay, here's the situation I'm in. How am I going to solve this problem with the least amount of effort and get it done in the allotted time? you know, that, that needs to happen. And you can see that, I mean, you can see that in a hunting scenario. You can see it in a law enforcement scenario. You can see it in a, in a, a military scenario. There's, it's just, why not, you know, why not go out there and, and try those things? And you've often talked about how that, you know, I've, I've, um, you know, I, I don't use a whole lot of bags, you know, and mm-hmm. that was one of the things, you know, growing up with this, it was like, never rest anything hard to heart, you know? And so that was another thing that I did. I went out and I said, well, what happens if I rest hard to heart? And I found out that nothing really happens. It's just, you gotta, you gotta drive the rifle a little bit better. You know, you have to have more control of that rifle. And so, you know, it, it's just things like that. We, we just want the competition to have a, a learning aspect too. you know, saying, okay, this is something I haven't thought of before, but if it's, if it's something that could happen or something that has happened, you know, well, 
why not, why not, you know, go and practice that a little bit, you know, rather than just going to a hundred yards and shooting off a bench. <laughs> yeah. 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 But I, that's what, that's, a, I mean, that, that's exactly why it's such a good event for, for people that haven't been to competition because it, no other competition is going to prepare you for the brawl. You just have to go experience it. And, and if you've, if you've got biases or preconceived ideas of what a match should be like, like you're going to get upset, but if you don't, your, your perspective is going to be broader and you won't have the blinders. And if you start that way, I think you'd be better off in a, in a holistic context because now there aren't those self-imposed limitations of, you know, this is the way I do it because this is the way I was asked to do it before. And, mm-hmm. and, and so I think from a growth perspective, starting off with the broadest view and the idea of, um, you know, who knows how you'll ever have to be asked to apply this rifle. So you know, why impose limitations now? Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, let, exactly. Let, let, let's be open to the, the crazy world of possibility and, mm-hmm. um, and see how it works. I, I, I think that's, that's really super cool. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you coming on and, um, man, I love, I, I just love talking to you. So we're going to have to record, record more of these instead of just talking and not recording it. But thank you. Thank <laughs> you so much for coming on. Yeah, man. I appreciate you having me. And, uh, if there's uh if there's ever anything we can do, uh, for you down here, don't hesitate to call and hopefully we'll see you soon. Maybe at the brawl. Heck yeah. Heck yeah, man. All right. Well, let's talk soon. And okay, sir. you have a good day. Thank you so much. All right. You too. Yes, Bye. sir. Thank you.